Thank you so much for tuning into the Don't Knock It podcast. If you find any piece of this content valuable, helpful, or worth sharing, please hit the like button, leave a review, subscribe, or if you're fortunate enough to be doing life with someone else, share an episode with them. With that being said, here's my heart for you all. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he prays to the Father, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This means that eternal life is found in not just knowing about God and his Son, but knowing God and his Son. I pray you consider embarking on that journey to know him who gave his only son to die for our sins so that through our faith in him, we may have eternal life. This entire podcast was made to hopefully help you in any way on that journey. Thank you. I appreciate you. Now enjoy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you. As we bow our heads, Father, give us a vision of a heavenly city. A heavenly city that we will inherit, not based on our works, but on the works that you provided through your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have the greatest inheritance. So Father, I pray that as we open up your word, that you give us strength to accept them, to give us strength and clarity to understand them and to lead us with eyes wide open to continue walking in those words, in those precepts, and in those standards that you have set forth for us. So lead us by your Holy Spirit as we dive into your word today, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last time I was with you, um, I went through... Philippians chapter 1, and the outline for that was the joyful sufferer, to never underestimate the power of an example. And I outlined that in five aspects of Paul's character that provided the church at Philippi and other believers powerful motivation to suffer joyfully. So if you ever want to know how you are to suffer joyfully, because that is promised by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, read the first chapter of Philippians, and to kind of give up, to sum it up, uh, the joyful sufferer is thankful, is, is very grateful for the mercy that has been shown to him. The joyful sufferer prays. He is consistently praying for the joy and the progress of himself and the believers next to him, suffering alongside him. The joyful sufferer also exalts he lifts up and magnifies Christ, not himself or not anyone else around him. He exalts Christ and Christ alone. The fourth point was endurance, that the joyful sufferer endures, that he remains in his current circumstances in order to exhibit this joyful suffering. And then lastly, the point number five was encouragement, that the joyful sufferer doesn't tear those down around him, other believers, other ministers of the gospel, but builds them up and encourages them and to, to suffer well. And I concluded that message with the fact that these aren't just signs of a joyful sufferer. These are signs of a true believer. Because if you flip each point on its head, if you make it an opposite, those are signs of a, of a true believer. 
Um, so ingratitude, someone who doesn't pray, someone who exalts himself rather than Christ, someone who um, quits at the first sign of suffering, and then someone who tears down and doesn't encourage. That's not a true believer. So these five points are not just points that describe someone who suffers well, someone who has a capacity to suffer well. It is their points that describe a Christian, a believer. So what I asked, I would ask that you read if you, if you missed that message, read first, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and, and meditate on those truths. So to kind of give an, uh, a brief uh, overview on the context of Philippians. So Paul is, a, is Christ's chosen instrument to suffer for his namesake. We see that in Acts chapter 9 when he's converted. And in Acts 16, we see the nature of his church plant. He plants this church in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, which is incredibly crucial to the context. And we'll see later why that's the case. And he plants his church with Timothy um, on the heels of the salvation of Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer and his household. And so he writes this letter 11 to 12 years after planting that church. Um, and his reason for, for writing is to encourage them to continue living faithfully, that the joy of the gospel is to dictate their lives and how they are to suffer well, um, regardless of their circumstances. So at the end of first, uh, I teach through First Corinthians as well with the youth, so please forgive me if I say First Corinthians instead of Philippians. So at the end of Philippians chapter 1, in verse 27, Paul begins his encouragement. And so he starts out with, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he calls and he exhorts the Philippians um, to unity. And he reveals in, in verses 29 through 30 that this unity is going to be portrayed in the suffering for Christ's sake. And I'll just read verses 29 and 30 here. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, and experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So this exhortation and this reminder makes full circle with Paul's life verse in Acts chapter 9, that Paul is appointed to, to suffer for Christ's namesake. And so here, he brings it full circle. He's, he's, he's reminding them and he's exhorting them, not only am I going to suffer, but you're going to suffer with me. And as we saw in Philippians chapter 1, that's a gracious and a wonderful privilege. Because if you suffer for Christ, you are going to be exalted with him because you are in Christ. And so that, that's the reason why it's an encouragement when Paul ends chapter 1 with these words. Because they are, they are an actual encouragement. Because unity in Christ's suffering is unity in Christ's exaltation. So... Chapter 1 ends with his exhortation, and it trickles down into chapter 2, but not only does he continue his exhortation to, to unity and exhorting them and encouraging them to, live, to continue living faithfully, he introduces this attitude of humility, and that's where we're going to be tonight. And so I titled this message, The Attitude of Humility, the outline um, if you read along with me, is in Philippians 2, we see five aspects of humility. 
that encouraged the Philippians and I believe every other believer that claims the name of Christ to continue living the joy of the gospel in unity. And this is done with the attitude of humility. The five points are um, the explanation of humility, which we'll go over in, in verses one through four, which is what does humility mean? Where do we get this definition of humility? And we see it in, 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 uh, in the first point, in the first four verses. Second point is the exemplary example of humility. How is this, do we have a perfect example of it? Because we understand that humans are imperfect. And so not everyone, whether they have great aspects of humility in their lives, we understand that not every, not a single person is perfect. So do we have a, a foundational standard to base our humility off of? And we do, and we'll see that in, in, the, in what's known and what's, cons- what's considered as the great Christ hymn in point number two. Point number three is the expression of humility in verses 12 through 18. How do we live that out practically? Point number four is the encouragement of humility, verses 19 19 through 24. How does this benefit anyone? How could it possibly benefit anyone, this attitude of humility? And then lastly, point number five is the effort of humility. Does it require much of me? So we'll start with point number one. What does humility mean? Follow along with me in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one, pur- on one purpose. So Paul beginning uh, verse 1 with a therefore, he is trickling down his his exhortation to unity here in these verses. And although we do see in a bunch of, in a, in a lot of translations, we see the words if. Although that's the case in a lot of these translations, it's to be seen more so as, um, not so much as if statements, but better understood as because statements. Because or since statements. Because these verses right here communicate realities communicate certainties, not possibilities. The reason for that is because, um, and I'll, I'll get to that here in a sec, where I will go over each aspect that Paul mentions in verse one, and we'll begin with encouragement in Christ. That word in the Greek literally means coming alongside of, coming alongside to help, counsel, and, and comfort. An example of this, this word is used elsewhere in John chapter 14, verse 26, and, and Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26 says, or starting at verse 25, he says, he says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, there's that same word, the same form of the word, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, this is a present reality to you, something that, that, that Jesus and his work has made possible by the giving of the Holy Spirit, the helper. The next one is consolation of love. This means comfort from someone drawing near whispering cheerful words or tender counsel in your ear. An example of that is in John chapter 11, verses 19 with Mary and Martha. 
Verse 19 says, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console, there's that word, uh, them concerning their brother Lazarus. So, so the Jews were coming to, to comfort uh, Mary and Martha, who had, who had just lost and were grieving their brother Lazarus. And so this comfort comes from someone drawing near and whispering sweet mercies and sweet, sweet tender words to you. When, when you're grieving, the last thing you want is for someone to grab your face and yell at you. When you're grieving, you want someone to hold you and to, and to comfort you um, in your distress, gently, tenderly. And this is, this is the word this is the consolation of love. This is what Jesus has also provided by, the, by means of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase is fellowship of the Spirit, the word koinonia, which means intimate, self-sacrificial conformity to a shared vision with believers. An example of that is uh, Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, uh, describing the nature of church or the church body where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's that word koinonia. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. And Paul has also used it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, um, as evidence, like their fellowship was evidence of their salvation. This is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, again, provided by uh, Christ's finished work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to any and all uh, born-again believers. The last two words are affection and compassion. We saw the word affection earlier in chapter one, where it literally means bowels. That's what it means, like your, your inner parts. And so what it means in, in chapter one and here in, in chapter two is the deep-seated affections and desires. It's, it's, it's the source of your strongest emotions. When you grieve, when you're angry, when you feel intense love for someone, you don't feel it. Anyone, uh, anywhere else but your stomach. Like you almost feel sick to your stomach. That's how powerful this, uh, this word in the Greek communicates. That's the type of power that it communicates. And the example again is in Philippians 1.8, speaking of the affections of Christ. Verse eight, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So if you take a second to reflect on these phrases, that Paul opens these, these are all present realities, present certainties to all believers. I say those things because every single phrase is incredibly intimate. So if you ever feel like God is far away, if you ever feel like you have no encouragement, you have no consolation, you have no fellowship with other believers, these things are provided to you by the Holy Spirit. And I, I wanted to to spend some time explaining each portion of that verse because these are the cords of love that bind believers, believers together as God's people. So it's not just your individual selves. All of these put together and bind together God's people. And so the reason why I say that this is a trickling down of, of of Paul's encouragement in the last few verses of chapter one is for this reason. It is the koinonia, it is the, the beautiful fellowship that has been provided by Christ's finished work and him promising to send somebody, to send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to indwell us, to walk us through, to guide us, to console us, to encourage us, to give us the strength of fellowship with other believers 
understanding that these are the source of the deep-seated desires and the, strong, the, 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 the source of the strongest emotions towards one another. So I asked you, church, do you see these as realities in your life? Are you encouraged? Are you consoled? Are you, do, you, do you partake in the beautiful fellowship that, Holy, that the Holy Spirit has provided? If you are in Christ, they are, or at least they should be. So because of these present realities provided to you in Christ, Paul says, make my joy complete. And how is that to be done? By demonstrating unity, as we see in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So if, if tonight's message is about humility, if Paul talks about humility in chapter 2, why does he say, make my joy complete? Isn't that a little selfish? Doesn't that sound a little selfish? He's not focused on the joy being complete for the Philippians, but he's focused more so on, his, on himself. But this isn't selfish, and we'll see why. Ask any pastor. Ask any elder. These ministers' joy is directly tied to the people's maturity and their spiritual growth. Their form of success their, their idea of a successful church is a faithful church. It could be three people in a room. It could be 5,000. But if there's 5,000 people in this room and not a single one is faithful, it is a dying, it is a worthless church. So this isn't selfish because Paul's joy as a spiritual father is directly tied to, to his people's maturity and his spiritual growth and joy in, their, in the midst of their circumstances. Ask any parent. Many of you are parents. How delighted are you when your household is united? Not because it's, it's less uncomfortable for you or less shameful for you when other people see your family all, in all types of ways, but you are delighted simply because you delight in their unity, that they're not bickering, that they're loving on each other. Paul, as a spiritual father, delighted in this. Ask the Apostle John. In 3 John verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. This is the joy. This isn't selfish. This is the attitude of humility. Paul is not saying make my joy complete simply because he wants to satisfy himself. He's saying this because their unity would reflect the truth of the gospel. Because they understand that the Holy Spirit has provided what we saw in verse 1. If this is present in, ver in the church, the things that we saw in verse 1, that's going to make Paul's joy complete. It is the evidence of salvation. But how is such powerful unity possible? Verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out, of your, look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the definition of humility. That, that phrase, empty conceit, literally means vain glory. Delusions of grandeur. Something that was already present in the church, as we saw in the first chapter of Philippians, that these people were preaching. They were preaching a biblical Christ, the reason I say that is because Paul would have addressed it. 
he, he will not condone an unbiblical Christ being preached in, in his area. And so they're preaching a biblical Christ, but they're doing it out of, of, of envy and strife, seeking to, to, to harm Paul while he's, he's in prison, while he's in Roman chains. And so the, these are empty promises of a false glory. And so the opposite of humility is pride. And we see that when Peter communicates in his letter, um, chapter 5, verse 5, by quoting Proverbs 3.34, where he says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is a compound word, which means... the first half is low to the ground. Literally means low to the ground. The second half is mindset or attitude. So it literally means have, have a mindset that keeps you low, keeps you below everyone else. Um, you've probably heard of C.S. Lewis's uh, famous quote, uh, defining humility, which is humility is not thinking, of, uh, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a pretty, pretty a biblical uh, definition um, but this literally means with a lowly attitude, have others above or uh, over you. Because the word important means uh, above or over and have. So the word for important is uh, huper echo. Huper means above or uh, over. And then echo literally means to have. So having humility, allowing others to be more important than yourselves, considering others more important than yourselves, literally means with a lowly attitude, an attitude that's low to the ground, you're able to have others above you, to have them more important as you. So how do I regard others in this way? I feel like this is uh, a wonderful time to introduce um, something that Pastor Dave and some of the other pastors have, have used to describe humility, and that's joy. We, we see we see the illustration, we see the definition of humility in, in, their, in the acronym of joy, which is Jesus, others, yourself. So Jesus, he has to be the foundational work. He has to be first. The reason for that is because if we don't have Jesus, we don't have the present realities given to us that we saw in verse 1 if we don't have Jesus, if, we don't, if he doesn't complete his ministry and send us the helper. That's why it's first. It's a very helpful illustration to understand not just joy, not just how to have joy, but how how to understand humility. The other one is others. So this right here, we see this in in these verses, is do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is humility. And then lastly, yourself. This is now you. You are able to have joy if you have this attitude of humility because you have them in the correct biblical order. So it's not by accident that the theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy. It's no accident that he, accident that he spends so much time unraveling humility because those two are closely and inseparable. They're, they're closely tied together and inseparable. <clears throat> so to recap point number one, Paul reminds them of their beautiful, already present privileges in Christ provided by the Holy Spirit, and explains the the attitude that makes this joy in unity possible. And that is 
through humility. So that leads us to point number two, exemplary example. Starting at verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I'll take this time to preface this passage. That this is, if you open any commentary, if you ever find yourself reading a commentary, if you open up to a commentary and you get to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and you open up to this passage right here, verses 5 through 11, it'll probably be the thickest portion of the commentary. There would be so much time spent here because a lot of questions arise from this passage. And so this is simply, Paul is going to talk about Christ and he's going to put, he's going to include him in what he's writing about humility as an example. But I, 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 I deem it necessary to make the distinction that this is not an example for you to follow necessarily. Because Jesus, and some of the things that, that are said in this passage, and you'll understand why, Jesus empties, empties, empties himself of certain divine privileges. We can't do that. We are not able to do that. So we can't see this as merely an example to follow. See this more so as Jesus accomplishing these things. Because we are able to exhibit, we, we are able to exhibit an attitude of humility because of what he accomplished. And that's described here in this passage. So just keep that in mind that it's not, Paul isn't necessarily including this to, for, you, for an example for you to follow. This is, simply describing Jesus' humility, I would argue humiliation, to describe the things that, that he accomplished and what he made possible for you to have humility, for you to have the verses, um, or for you to have the things that we saw in verse one. So like I said, now no one has a perfectly humble attitude. So do we have a perfect model of humility? The reason why I included the word exemplary in the point is because exemplary, uh, its definition is the most desirable model, representing the best of its kind. It's, it's the best we have. It's the only thing we have. And so verse five, he focuses on the attitude not so much as the action of him doing what he did um, in, these, in these passages, but the attitude, the attitude of humility. <clears throat> this is considered the great Christ hymn. Hymn as an H-Y-M-N, because historically this passage right here was sung in churches throughout history, and we'll see why. <clears throat> the... These, this passage is split up into two parts. Verses 6 through 8 focuses on Christ's humiliation. And then verses 9 through 11, it focuses on his exaltation. And we'll spend some time in verses 6 through 8 first. And I'm just going to read that whole passage because it's just too good to, to kind of break up. Verse 6, or I'll start at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this right here, is not 
your opportunity to, to go 10 rounds on the nature of Christ's deity. It's not your opportunity to, to Paul didn't include this in chapter two for you to go 10 rounds with another believer on the nature of Christ being God. That's not what this is for. Paul opens in verse five, have this attitude in yourself. So the focus here is attitude. What type of attitude did, God, did Jesus have with his divine privileges? <clears throat> we'll see later in verses nine through 11, if, if you do have any objections, any questions about Christ's deity, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in verses nine through 11. So I just wanna go over a few key words in verse six that hopefully um, explains the nature of Christ emptying himself, being in the likeness of God, being in the form of God, and emptying himself of whatever he emptied himself of. So the key words in verse six are form, grasp, or robbery, if you're reading the New King James, and equality. Form describes the essential, unchanging character of something. The word grasp or robbery is anything clutched, embraced, prized, or held onto. The word equality is, literally means same in size, quality, or character. And so with that in mind, with those definitions in mind, uh, of the paraphrase of verse six would be, although Jesus having the essential unchanging character of the divine did not exploit or clutch onto the advantages of being equal with God the Father. So simply put, he did not exploit the advantages of his divine form. So what did he choose instead? Verses seven and eight, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I like how John MacArthur sums up these few verses, um, which I think is really important to sum up what happened here. And I think he, he sums it up here in this quote um, in his commentary where he says, though Christ had all the rights, all the privileges and honors of deity, which basically means God, his attitude was not to cling, there's that key word, his attitude was not to cling onto those things or his position, but to give them up, that's where the word empty comes in, uh, for a season. And we see this nature of forfeited rights in his prayer to, to the Father in, in chapter John, in chapter John, in John chapter 17, specifically verse five, I won't read the whole prayer, but it's a beautiful, magnificent prayer. And I would encourage you, I would encourage all of you to read and meditate on how Jesus prays to the Father. Verse five says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This type of language implies that he had something that he gave up, that he forfeited, that he didn't deem necessary to exploit while here on earth. Now, that begs the question, did Jesus have equality with God at all? Surely, Absolutely. We see that in John chapter 5, verses 18 through 24, where he explains how he's equal with the Father. I won't read the, the whole passage, but um, in verse 21 specifically, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. 
These were the things that, that Jesus had that he gave up, and those were divine privileges. Verses 7 and 8 include or mention a few words that, that are very important regarding the context, regarding to who this letter was to, which was to the Philippians. The first one is slave. It may be bondservant in some of your translations, but this word, this, this word slave would be absolutely absurd to the Philippians. The reason for that is because Philippi was a Roman colony. No, no Roman was a slave. The next one is, is death on a cross. So the word cross, while Paul is emphasizing obedience. So Paul's absolutely absurd, and he has a great audacity mentioning sl- slavery and death on a cross to the people who were literally bound by law where it was illegal to be crucified. And so these words were absolutely astounding to the Philippians, especially since Paul urged them to imitate the humility and obedience of Christ, who willingly died on, uh, of Christ, who willingly died on a cross. This is Christ's humiliation. So I, I have a few reflection points and questions that I kind of want you guys to chew on. Many of you know what happened exactly one year from, from today. If you don't, there was what's called an insurrection at the Capitol. And so many of them were professing Christians. One of them even is recorded giving a prayer in a specific room. And this prayer focuses on the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God, which is quite ironic because if you understand the sovereignty of God, you know that there are certain appointed leaders. So the reason why I seek to mention that here is because the Philippians being citizens of Rome or, or having Roman, citizen, Roman citizenship in Philippi, understanding that their law, by law, they could not be crucified. How in the world is it possible for Paul to, to urge them to imitate this type of humility? Surely I would imagine that some of the Philippians were like, wait, hold on, look. Pulled out the Roman magisterium. By law, I am not to be crucified. Likewise, many people today would pull out another certain document and say, look here, I'm not giving up my guns. I'm not giving up my freedom of speech. I'm not giving up my freedom to worship. And so I present these things as reflection points to you because what happened at the Capitol was the culmination of this marriage between your citizenship citizenship as an American and your citizenship as uh, your citizenship being in heaven. That was the culmination of what happened. That prayer that that person uh, proclaimed in that office was the culmination of this marriage between your citizenship here and your citizenship in heaven that Christ has made possible. This is a form of idolatry. So you have a choice, church. 
who are you going to serve? Who are you willingly going to die on? Because you have a choice to die on one or two hill, one of two hills. Are you going to die on Calvary Hill or Capitol Hill? Because a lot of them could have died. If you were there, would you have been willing to die on Capitol Hill rather than on the Hill of Calvary? Now, I, I say those things not willingly or not just flippantly, but I say those things because I think we see it here. Because Paul, in chapter 1, he says, um, consider yourselves, I'm going to get to it real quick. Verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct is where we get the word metropolis, polis, city. You are to be a citizen and to act like a citizen of a heavenly city. And so I, I say those things as re- mere reflection points, mere questions for you to chew on, for you to understand. So when you think of humiliation, what do you think of? When you say, like, I am absolutely humiliated, what do you think of? I think it's your actions or another person's actions deeming you less worthy of a human. You think of yourself so much so to have certain rights, to have certain um, things as a human being. That's what, when you, so when you're humiliated, that's, that drops down a notch. Whatever happens, whatever someone does to you, whatever you do that humiliates you, you lose something of yourself. That takes a while to get back, whether it's a reputation, whether it's power, whether it's rights, whatever it may be, you drop down a notch. For Christ, he didn't, necessarily become less deity, but he certainly had reduced divine privileges. And not only did he have them reduced, he did it willingly. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That is a great exchange this is the humility of Christ, and I just want to take this moment to um, uh, say a few words in, in song form that go off of that. Um, this hip-hop artist, Timothy Brindle, in his song called Humility of Christ, says, it's, I'm amazed how God, infinite in wealth, put aside his fame and limited himself. We know we, we know we like commodities, but the possessor of all riches chose a life of poverty. This is your king. This is the great Christ hymn. This is your king. This is the second person of the Trinity, the omnipotent, omnipotent God who came as a crying baby. This past Christmas, did you reflect on that? Did you reflect on this massive, magnanimous king being birthed through his own creation? being nailed onto his own creation by the very people he created. So he who had infinite joy and pleasure became a man of sorrow so we could enjoy him forever. I like uh, regarding the humility of Christ and referring to um, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I like John Piper's quote where he says, how could one man in a matter of hours, drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken eternity to be poured out on me. How could that be? One man, 
This is the humility of Christ. So because he didn't stay in the grave, because of his humble obedience, he was exalted. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul breaks into doxology. It's, it, there isn't an amen there, but you just can't help. You just can't help it. Because Paul describes this, this humiliating lowering of Christ even to death on a cross, and then emphasizes his exaltation. And there's, you just can't help by finishing that with an amen, a praise. So this is important because suffering, those who suffer in Christ, are strengthened knowing that they are vindicated by God in Christ. That word vindicated literally means the action of proving something or someone to be justified. You are not to, be, to remain hopeless because in your suffering, you have strength provided by the finished work of Christ that you will be vindicated by God in the end. So if there's still doubt or confusion about Jesus being God in verses six through eight about this, this, this uh, language of him emptying himself, verses 10 through 11 affirm Christ's deity But how? Verse 10, where it says, every knee will bow, is actually a quote from Isaiah 45, verses 21 through 23. And then I'll just flip to that real quick, because I didn't have it written down. Starting at verse 21 in Isaiah 45. Speaking of Yahweh, God, who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness righteousness, and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. This is God speaking in the Old Testament in, in Isaiah. Paul refers to this. Uh, Paul here in chapter 2 refers, uses that, that language of every knee will bow, referring to Christ. So if you had any question, if you had any inclination to disagree, we see it here when Paul draws on Isaiah. Paul draws from Isaiah's theology to further solidify that Jesus himself is in fact God. So to recap point number two, Paul provides powerful motivation to transform how they act towards one another by reflecting on what Christ has made possible and what he has accomplished in his own humility, in his own humiliation. He calls Christians to shape their community to reflect or to express the self-humbling service of the Lord whom they worship. So this leads us to point number three. Since I'm not God, and you're not God, and cannot empty yourself of any divine privileges, as Jesus did, how do I practically express 
his humility as Paul is urging the Philippians. And we see that in point number three. How do we live it out? Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So because the previous portion is referred to as the Christ hymn, you're literally worshiping. If they sung this in churches, you just finished worshiping the creator of the universe, the humility of Christ. So likely, or likewise, um, now we get into practicing it. So similar to how church is for us, we worship and then we leave church to practice it. I like what, what our pastors here say that if, if Sunday, or in our case, Thursday, or um, if Monday, in our case, Friday, if they don't change, then Sunday or Thursday didn't matter. And so here we see we just finished worshiping. And if it doesn't change, if it doesn't look like what Paul explains right here in the practical aspect of it, this Christ hymn is useless. Christ emptying himself, Christ being humiliated, is useless. So practice it, because it's a shame if you don't. So <clears throat> this implies a continuation of chapter 1, which is the fellowship evidence. Paul here draws on um, the type of language that he use, uses here in verse 12. He says, not as in my, or, um, just as you have always obeyed, He's using past tense, meaning that they were already fellowshipping with him. They were already proving themselves worthy of, of, of being in the kingdom of God. And we see that in their fellowship. Um, if you remember at the beginning, I, I say that Paul writes this letter 11 to 12 years after he planted the church. And Paul says in chapter 1 that they were faithfully fellowshipping with him. So much so so practically that he bases his confidence in their salvation in how they fellowshiped with him. Paul saying, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He wants them, now that he's absent, much more in his absence, he wants them to continue even more so. Some of you parents may understand this because when, you're, when you teach your children certain things, you want them to continue eat in that and to learn further than whatever you could have taught them after they're gone. In this, in this, they're once dependent on you, and now in their independence, you want them to not only exhibit the good teachings that you taught them, but to learn more good teachings and to continue into that. And so that's what Paul is, is exhorting them to do even more in his absence. That phrase, work out your own salvation, does not mean that you are to do work in order to be saved. I like how the New Living Translation uh, translates this specific portion where he says, uh, work hard to show the results of your salvation, because it is hard. It is hard to not empty yourself as in Christ emptied himself, but to consider yourselves more important than yourself. That's hard. That's something that people spend their entire lives trying to master. This is why Paul um, breaks out in doxology when he reflects on Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. 
that, that phrase fear and trembling um, denotes the Old Testament presence of God. If you think back on every, what, what's called a, a theophany, where God shows up like in, a, in some type of physical form, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, almost every single time, if not, I would argue, every single time, it's received in fear. A lot of the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament either shudder in fear or they're straight on their face worshiping the God, uh, the God that they're in the presence of. Um, some examples in the Old Testament is in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were hiding from God after they had sinned. Uh, Moses, he hid his face in, in Exodus chapter 3 where, where God speaks to him and he says, Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Moses hides his face. Isaiah, in his vision in chapter 6, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Woe is me. Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips, being in his presence. And then Mary, afraid. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, afraid. They didn't see God, but they saw angels um, and even likely they were, they were afraid. So this, these, these responses that we see in these, these people in the Old Testament and the New Testament are a visual representation of humility, low to the ground. What does humility look like if you're not practicing it with other people? On the ground, face down, in the presence of God. So to do things with fear and trembling is to actually do things with humility. Why? Because humility is a submission to God's presence. It is, it is a submission to God's presence. It is a trembling anxiety to not fall short of the goal. Hebrews talks about that in chapter 4, chapter four verse 1. So you may say, but what if I just can't? I can't do that. It's, it's hard for me. Do not fret. Do not, be, do not be worried, my beloved. Verse 13, because it's not up to you. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's grace, what he has provided through Jesus' finished work and the provision of the Holy Spirit is both the will and the work to do it to fulfill or to walk in God's will. The will means he actually stirs up your emotions to desire to do his will, and that's done by the Holy Spirit. This is the nature of conviction. You feel bad, you feel remorse because of your bad decisions, or you feel the desire to do good, to be humble and not prideful because of the Holy Spirit in you. That's God. He also does the work he provides the enabling power for you to walk in the will of God. This, my friends, this is an all-encompassing expression of God's love, of his security, and desire to see his children walking in the truth. This is what he provides. So how exactly do I work out this salvation? Paul provides the answer in verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I'll leave that there. <laughs> Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent 
children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Those words, <laughs> I, I feel the need to not describe the words from the Greek of grumbling and disputing because I feel like those are pretty self-explanatory, but I will here. Grumbling means secret complaints, meaning that you, when you're in church or when you're you know, at a concert, whatever it may be, and you're like just whispering to the other person, um, complaining, that is your grumbling. Disputing is, is actually pretty interesting. I actually, I'm glad I started um, describing these because it means doubting. It means hesitating. It means arguing. So these two things Paul is, is exhorting them to do or to not to do because these two things cause divisions. So the importance of the attitude of humility, as we see in verse 15, is that you are blameless, that you are innocent before Christ, that you are above reproach in a dark world, and that you do the work of illumination. This is possibly a reference to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the moon and the stars reflect, they don't produce their own light. They reflect the light of the sun, specifically the moon. A lot of them in ancient times, the moon and the stars were both used to guide, to provide light and to guide, to guide direction. This is your incredible privilege as Christians, that you are to be lights in a dark world. Because no one, no one has ever blamed a dark room for being a dark room. You may have walked into your kid's bedroom and said, why is it so dark in here? Two possibilities. One, the power's out. And we see here, whether you're, you know, on top of that stuff, on top of your bills, you know that that is never, if ever, true. Likely, God is moving, so there is power. There will always be power. So that's not an option. The option must be that the light is either obscured, they put something over the windows, stopping the light to come in, or light is completely absent. I like what Pastor Dave uh, uh, says when he says, you can't blame the world for acting like they don't know God when they don't know God. You can't blame a dark room. You can't blame a dark world for being dark if there's no light, if there's no presence of the light, if the, if the light, the only source of light has been obscured. This is your job. You are reflectors of the light. You do the work of illumination. How is this accomplished? Verse 16, you hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast means that you're not just reading your scriptures, that you're not just doing your Bible reading, that you're not just simply going through the Bible in a year simply so that come December 31st, you can say that you completed it, that you read your Bible 
It is not simply reading it, but cherishing it. And we see this uh, described in Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 3, where he says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. And John also mentioned this um, in chapter 6, verses 66 through 69. At this point, contextually, many walked away because Jesus had just taught on the Lord's Supper, where he talks about eating of my flesh, drinking of my blood. And he also says, um, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Those are very hard truths to swallow. And so many walked away. And verse 67 says, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to walk away also, do you? And Peter responds and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is holding fast to the truth. This is holding fast fast to the words of life. As, as some of you may know, we're going through the letter of, uh, to the Philippians in the Young Adults group. Me and my brother Craig um, are going through it, and we spent the most time in this passage, verses 12 through 18, simply because we we're trying really hard to define what grumbling and disputing meant. And it's, it, it wasn't, we just spent a lot of time because we started talking about different scenarios and the young adults wondering what grumbling and disputing is just makes sense. <clears throat> I lost my train of thought. So the rest of verse 16 says, so why do we hold... The reason I get emotional reading these specific words is because this is what I held on to. I was saved seven years ago, and this is what kept me. This is what God used to preserve me, and it was holding fast to his words because it's what binds us together. So that rest of verse 16, we do these things so that in the day of Christ, I will have no reason to glory because I did not rain, run in vain nor toil in vain. Some, some versions translate this to mean reason to, to boast, reason to glory. And so Paul, as we saw in verse 1, he has a different perspective on glory or, or to boast. He boasts solely in the Philippian salvation, in the salvation that Christ has done and provided to the Philippians. Why? Because this was a fulfillment of Paul's calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his, 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 his marching orders, so to speak, as we saw in Acts um, chapter 9, when Jesus tells Ananias, go baptize him, go minister to him, because he is an appointed sufferer for my name's sake. He is to go to the kings, to the Gentiles, um, to, to minister, to proclaim my name, and to suffer for my sake. That word vain means that his efforts for their maturity was to not be rendered useless. His glory was in defining or was defined in his calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles 
in their salvation. So even if his work proves to have been in vain or a waste of time, Paul holds a Christ-like attitude about it where he says in verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So Paul says, even though I'm completely poured out to me, being poured out as a drink offering was an ancient way of of, um, giving a sacrifice to a, a god. We see that in a few places. We see that in Genesis 35, verse 14, where Jacob's, Jacob uh, pours out a drink offering on the pillar where he had spoken with God. And then in Hosea verses, or chapter 9, verse 4, uh, referring to uh, people who idolize, the idolaters, their sacrifices being worthless to God. So it's just a quick reference. And so this imagery of being poured out is it possibly may be referring to Paul's potential death, his impending doom. So he says, even if I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering, even though I'm going to die, I rejoice anyway. As we saw in chapter one, we see that he is going to rejoice and Christ is going to be exalted, whether in his life or in his death. So even though not only does he rejoice and share his joy with them, he also urges them to do the same. This is a beautiful exhortation to unity. A beautiful call to unity. For them to suffer well and for, him, and for them to suffer with him and to rejoice in it. So to recap point number three, with the magnificent image of Christ's humiliation, and exaltation, fresh in our minds, Paul gives us practical ways to reflect the true light of the world and to give us reason to rejoice when the perverted darkness seeks to snuff those lights, those lights out. So after providing such moving encouragement to the Philippians, Paul himself seeks to be encouraged as well, not selfishly, but humbly by sending a trusted companion. And here we enter verse, or point number four, and I'll try to speed this up. These next two points describe two different trusted brothers of Paul, brothers in the faith who have proven to have humble characters, both within different circumstances, but both um, very worthy of their own point. I could have very well could have made this one whole point, but I think each one is worth its own simply because of the nature of their character. Verse 19, um, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So Paul in the past had sent Epaphroditus, who we will learn about in the next point in verses 25 through 30. Paul had sent Epaphroditus to minister to the Philippians. Now he's sending Timothy so that that the Philippians may minister to him with him hearing about their progress and their condition. This, This is how Paul intends to reconcile himself to them. To, to join with them, to hear about them, to understand and to be present with them in their own circumstances. So that when he comes, because he does promise to come later, um, so that they may be uh, reunited in, such, in beautiful fellowship. But at this point, he couldn't send Epaphroditus 
um, again, because as we see in verses 25 through 30, he was sick. So he decides to send Timothy, another trusted companion. Why? And we'll see that in verses 20 and 21. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So as we saw in, in chapter 1, we understand that there are ministers of the gospel, of the true gospel, of the true biblical Christ, preaching selfishly, preaching for vain glory, preaching to divide, even though they were preaching uh, a biblical Christ. And so it was very important if they were going to send, send each other um, other ministers, other trusted, trusted companions, it was very important for them to be genuine for them to be of kindred spirit, which means uh, a closely tied souls. <clears throat> he was of kindred spirit because he has, been Paul, he has been with Paul since the beginning. In chapter 1, or in, in Acts 16, when they plant the church, Timothy was with them. He, w- he was with him when they planted the church. And so the worst thing that they could do in their, whether it's, it was their their present circumstances, their present impending doom, or their future doom, it was very necessary for him to send someone that they trusted, <clears throat> someone who was reliable. I mean, how would, how would you feel if you were grieving, if you were struggling with something, and, and a stranger showed up? You wouldn't receive them as warmly. So Paul, with him being present or Timothy with him being present when Paul planted the church was absolutely necessary and a joy for them. So he presents this encouragement, and I'll just, let's see. Hmm. Okay, I'll read the rest of that portion. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So Paul, Timothy was such a trusted companion that Paul refers to him as a son, as a child who, who follows his father. This is incredibly important because in that time, the, the, a son inherited glorious riches, not just in material wealth, but in wisdom. Paul here refers to him as a, spiritual, as, as a spiritual father to his son Timothy, so this is why it's important for him to send him. And so to kind of recap point number four, Paul seeks the encouragement of the humility of Timothy, the humility of the Philippians to hear of, those, uh, of their condition because this is the type of encouragement that humility provides. I'm going to read the last portion, the last point, point number five, which is the effort of humility. Does it require much of us? And so I'm just going to, I'm going to read it and I'm going to include an example and hopefully tie it up so that we can get out of here um, at a decent hour. Um, So the effort of humility, this is where we're introduced to Epaphroditus. But I thought it necessary, verse 25, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my needs. So I'll just stop right there to, to 
note that the reason why he includes all of these qualifications is because um, he wasn't there when he planted the church. So he's affirming his trustworthiness by including these things that, hey, this is, this, is an actually, this is actually a trustworthy person because he was my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and he's also carrying this letter with him. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I, be, I may be less concerned about you. Verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So this man, Epaphroditus, seeks to be sent to the Philippians because he had heard that they understood that he was sick. So they heard the news that Epaphroditus was sick. Epaphroditus was grieved, understanding that he was worried about them. So to kind of put that in perspective, I'll use an example. When I was in first grade, uh, my grandma passed away on my dad's side uh, from cancer. And we were at the wake, or at the viewing, and I was young, and so I was playing tag at my grandma's funeral with my other cousins. And so I was chasing my cousin to tag her, and she ran into the building, and before I was able to tag her, I reached out, and she closed the door and smashed my fingers. And that was the only time the first time and the only time I ever broke a bone, and it was my middle finger on my right hand. So I went to go tag her. She closed the door, crushed it. I, in my agony, I pound on the door with my left hand, pleading for her to open the door. She finally opens it, and I'm just, it was a first grader, and my fingers were just absolutely destroyed on this door. And so I hear that someone told my dad, who was at this point a grieving son, that uh, of the news of what happened. And so I have a predominantly Spanish-speaking family, and so when, you, when, they, when I heard about what they said to him, how they gave him the news, they said, lo machucaron, which means it, you can use the same phrase to communicate, he got ran over. So what my dad heard was, hey, your son just got ran over at your mother's funeral. And so I hear that, and I'm, I'm trying to find my dad. I'm like, this is, if this is what he heard, I need to show him that I'm okay. This is, what, this is the attitude that Epaphroditus had. He's saying, I need to show them that I'm okay. I need to make this trip so that I am reconciled to him. And so when my dad came out and I saw him, I didn't even get the chance to show him my hand. <laughs> I, I remember he embraced me and I was like so confused. I'm like, look, like I was hugging him. I'm like, I'm trying to show you something. But what he had heard, all he heard was lo, lo machucaron. And so when he came out, he fully expected to see me somewhere on the street. 
And so the reason I use that example is to hopefully adequately describe, obviously not, not specific to the example that we see here in Epaphroditus because he was sick even to the point of death. That picture of reconciliation, of, of the reunion that Epaphroditus sought to have with his beloved Philippians was pictured in my dad embracing me. I had the heart of like, I'm glad you feel okay now because I know the worry, however short it was, <clears throat> the intensity of the worry that I had put you through from that news, from the news that Epaphroditus was sick and almost dying or dying and almost dead. That was encapsulated and just vivid imagery of the embrace. I would imagine that that was the same type, if not even much more intense, uh, of an embrace that, that Epaphroditus got to have with the Philippians. And so all that to say, this is what humility provides. So when you hear of someone else quote um, the, the verse of, or the C.S. Lewis's quote, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Think of this passage right here. Think of the absolute humiliation of Christ. And I will say humiliation. A lot of people, a lot of commentators, a lot of theologians describe the passage um, in verses 5 through 11 as the humility of Christ. Rightly so. But I say, I, I like to refer to it as humiliation because he was he, he let go of some divine privileges, willingly, humiliated, even to point the death of a cross. This omnipotent, omnipotent God literally went to the lowest of lowest, washed his disciples' feet, which is seen to be, a, seen, seen to be understood as, as something only slaves do. But he was crucified next to two thieves. That is a humiliation of Christ. So when you hear that commonly used C.S. Lewis quote, when you have the urge to protect your rights above the rights that God in his humility has made, has provided for you, keep that in mind. Is it worth dying for? Is it worth ruining your witness to your people? So to kind of sum it all up, this is the attitude of humility that Christ has made possible. That verse in chapter one, or in that first verse, encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion encompasses God's security for you, for you to live as citizens of heaven, as citizens of a heavenly city. That is done with an attitude of humility because when you live that attitude of humility out, you are reflecting your crucified king, your resurrected king. So just, I pray, church, that you keep that in mind. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the incredible riches that you provided in the birth the life, the perfect ministry, the death, the crucifixion, and the ascension of your Holy Son, Jesus. For us to meditate on, for us to sing, 
for us to worship and to be exalted alongside him. Father, thank you. Father, I pray that as we, as we walk through these verses of, of humility, of, of Paul's humility, of Christ's great humility, and of the humility of two humble characters in Timothy and Epaphroditus, Lord, I pray that those truths, that those provided privileges that you made possible for us to inherit, that they resonate in our hearts so that we may be able to live so that we may be able to live out a changed Friday, a changed Monday, until we see your face, until we behold your glorious face. Encourage us, console us, allow us to have fellowship with each other with the affection and compassion that Jesus had for us. That is the spirit of humility that I pray we walk in. Thank you for making it possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.